Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. So hey, my name's Mike. You guys seem more awake now, so maybe that was a good thing. Um, I'm so delighted that you're here. If you're new to our community, hello. It's a tight ship, yes. Um, And welcome to the beginning of fall break. Um, Anyway, we are looking at the book of Revelation, and it's just singular, correct? Anyone says Revelations, there is a monitor. Uh, walking around, and um, you get just a minor tap on the uh, knuckles, okay, for that. Um, Not really, but anyway, uh, we are taking kind of a a, a different approach than kind of maybe how you've experienced the book. Um, The book itself says that it's an apocalyptic uh, piece of literature, which means that it's highly symbolic and not to be taken literally uh, in a number of places. Uh, The book says it's a prophecy, and in the vein of Old Testament prophecy, that the, the goal of prophecy wasn't to predict the future, but to encourage the present generation receiving the words of the prophecy to faithfulness and allegiance. And then the book also comes to us as a circular letter to seven real churches. We met one of those last week when Kevin introduced us to the church of Laodicea. And an assumption that carries with the idea that um, you know this was a circular letter is the fact that the original audience would have understood. This is still stunning and funky, isn't it? Mm, all right. Well, what do you want me to do? Keep going? I mean, okay. It's not bad. It's been worse. Okay, because it's really bugging me. Oh. So the exorcism we performed on the sound system did not work. This can only come out by prayer and fasting, in other words, is what we're saying. Bible jokes. Now, it is, it is. One of the seals is actually bad sound system. Um, <laughs> so, I know, I know. Yeah, we are, we've actually been raptured. That's the scary part. Um, <laughs> yeah, this, the eternal church service you were all afraid of, this is it. This is what it feels like right here. Oh, thank you. I know, I know. And, and yeah, so just tell children's we're going to go about an hour over today by the sound of it. Now, um, and, and one of the things, um, and I just want to be super honest as opposed to normal. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons why we tackle controversial subjects or pieces of the Bible is because for a lot of us in the church, we come into a community fully formed with what we think and what we believe, and pretty sure of our political leanings and our take on social issues. And, and one of the things that we don't do is allow our assumptions to be interrogated by the scriptures. How we evaluate churches is often, uh, here's what I believe, I'm gonna go to this church and see if they believe it, and if they do, great, and if they don't, I'll find somewhere else. And so we want to take pieces of the Bible and assumptions that are carried in them and actually hold them up very carefully to what the Scripture might say. And if that, if that calls into question some of the assumptions that we have, that's not a bad thing. Jesus dismantled the Judaism of his disciples. And so to, to think that somehow 2,000 years we've perfected Christianity 
so much so that Jesus doesn't have permission to disrupt us. I just don't think that's a healthy posture to approach this, the text from. So, so the goal isn't that you agree at all. The goal is that you just have an open mind to exploring a book that has often provoked fear and seeing it in a way where it provokes hope. So I'm going to start uh, in Revelation chapter 4. We're going to read the text. We're going to do 20 minutes of background, then we're going to read the text. All right? Lots of slides. It's going to be glorious. Revelation chapter 4. This comes after two chapters of letters to the seven churches. Revelation 4, we're going to start in, shockingly, verse 1. Now, it's fascinating. This is one of seven liturgical scenes in the book, right? We've met the number seven. John is a huge fan. So, of course, there are seven worship scenes in the book. Of course there are. Here's the first. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. This image is totally congruent with, like, Ezekiel 1. And the voice I had first heard talking about the lampstands was speaking to me like a trumpet, and he said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. We met that phrase in chapter 1. It's used four times to talk, kind of almost divide the book up. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, this is an incredibly Jewish way of talking about God. Right? The Jews of John's day did not pronounce the divine name. Even Jews today, if you meet some of them, they'll just write G-D out of respect for the divine name. So instead of saying, it's God sitting on his throne, the author says there is someone sitting on the throne of heaven. Now, in the Old Testament textual tradition, we get throne scenes all the time, and we know exactly who that is. But this is a very circumspect way of talking about God that totally fits in with kind of the prophetic tradition that John is channeling. Now, once I was in the Spirit, there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, the details we're going to get are almost all borrowed from the Old Testament, coming from Ezekiel, coming from Isaiah, um, coming from Zechariah is another place. The one who sat on the throne had the appearance of Jasper, and ruby or carnelian in older translations, that, those were colors of, that were on the breastplate of the high priest. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. And there are loads of guesses. Is this like the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles? There were 24 orders of priests in the Old Testament. Or because it's a throne room scene, is this just a circle of advisors? We don't know, but, it, but we meet elders in other throne scenes throughout, the, throughout this text in, in the Old Testament. They were dressed in white. Eight times people are dressed in white in Revelation. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And these crowns aren't like, you remember Burger King crowns? Right? These are like, these are, it was the word is stephanos, which is like a, a victor's wreath. It was a symbol of victory. They were dressed in white, had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And in Ezekiel, um, Exodus, in Daniel, when God appears, we get lightning and thunder, right? Nothing shocking there. What's interesting, though, there are all sorts of coins from the first century that show Zeus sitting on a throne having 
lightning and thunder coming from his throne as well. So you're doing, the, the author's doing two things at once. On the one hand, we're channeling a whole bunch of Old Testament imagery in the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew prophets. But secondly, as we're going to see, we're undercutting some of the propaganda around the Roman Empire. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. We met these lamps in chapter one. These are the seven spirits of God, the sevenfold spirit of God mentioned in Zechariah 4. In front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. This is in reference to a water basin in Solomon's temple that was literally called the sea and was torn down by the Babylonians uh, as they ransacked the temple. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. We meet these in Ezekiel, and they are covered with eyes in front and in back, just like my parents. My parents had eyes in front and back too. The first living creature was, uh, was like a lion, and this, this is coming from Ezekiel with some adaptations. The second was like an ox, the third had, the, had a face like a man, and the fourth was a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now that comes straight from Isaiah 6, who was and is and is to come. That's all over the Old Testament and in Revelation. And incidentally, this exact language was used in the worship of Zeus. Yes? Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. This is what you would do in the ancient world if you were a vassal of a king. You would take the symbol of your royalty and you would lay it before somebody else to give them worth and honor. So it's not surprising that when they lay their crowns down, they say, you are worthy, that word worth, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is one of the most famous scenes of the book of Revelation, and it's the picture of God we get is so kind of needed for the American church, if you're like me where God is presented as kind of the ultimate therapist, life coach, self-help guru. And, you know, God kind of exists to help me actualize myself. And then the picture we get of Revelation is of an entire universe arrayed around the throne of God and focusing in on that. And we don't at all, are, we are not the center of attention, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. But there are reasons why Revelation gives us this picture, all right? So that's the text we just made some Old Testament points along the way. Now we're going to spend about 20 minutes on why that picture is so significant, all right, to John's first listeners. Before he was a salad, we have to meet Julius Caesar. Yep, I've been saving that one. Saving that one. Yes! Oh, it gets worse. Jacob, fire up the Caesar. So we meet Julius Caesar. He is in conflict with a guy named Pompey. He's in Gaul. Pompey is in Syria and Palestine. They're headed for civil war. 
G, uh, Julius is assassinated in the Ides of March, 44 BC, or I'll put BCE either one. Um, and prior to that assassination, he adopted uh, a, a young man named Octavian as his royal heir. Now, next. When Caesar is assassinated, it's obviously a huge deal in the empire, but there was a comet that appeared in the sky soon after his assassination. Octavian, now battling others for power, claims that that's proof that Julius Caesar ascended to the right hand of Zeus and was divine. So, so Octavian begins to call himself, and we have coins that show this, son of the deified one, or son of the god. Right, so, so Octavian throws huge celebratory games in honor of Julius, and he begins to consolidate his power. Next. This leads into um, and continues almost 20 years of civil war. Initially, it was Julius versus Pompey, but then it's the allies of Julius versus the opponents of Julius, and that boils down essentially to Octavian in Italy and Mark Anthony with Elizabeth Taylor in Egypt. Only, yep, only, you got to be of a certain age to get that. This battle, this, is, this conflict is finally decided in the Battle of Actium, 31 BC. Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, Cleopatra are defeated, and Octavian is victorious. Now, the thing you've got to know is that the great gift that Octavian has given the empire is peace. After 20 years of civil war, next. Octavian is given the title of Augustus, the one who is divine or the one who is illustrious. He is also called Sebatas, which is one who is to be worshipped. And the command went out to include his name in all prayers and vows and sacrifices. Next. There were massive acclamations of um, Caesar Augustus, now as he was known, um, Horace, who we all are familiar with, his poetic work, um, normally emperors were honored after their death. But in Augustus's case, upon you, Augustus, however, while still living among us, next, we already bestow divine honors. We set up altars to swear by in your name and confess that nobody like you will ever arise hereafter or has ever arisen before now. Like the exalted language given to Caesar Augustus next. There was a competition. Now, now pay attention. The seven churches that are addressed in Revelation come from a region called Asia Minor. All right? Asia Minor was conquered by Rome um, about 100 years, roughly 100 years prior to this. And the Asian cities backed Mark Anthony in the conflict with Caesar Augustus. So when, when Octavian won and was renamed Augustus and began consolidating his powers, the region of Asia Minor rushed to honor Caesar Augustus like over the top to show their loyalty because they backed his opponent in the Civil War. So there was a contest that was held in Asia Minor about how do we best, how do we best honor Augustus? And someone came up with the idea, hey, let's make his birthday the beginning of the new year. Let's reorient our whole calendar around his birthday. 
And so this was the decree that followed, that announced we're reorienting our entire calendar. But notice the language. I just want you to notice the language. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into chaos and disorder and trending towards disillusion, talking about the Civil War, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities in Asia Minor unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us the Emperor Augustus, whom providence filled with strength for the welfare of men, and who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and set all good things in order. And having become God in flesh, Caesar has fulfilled the hopes of all earlier times, surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him, and we keep going, and whereas, finally, the birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. That's the word we translate gospel. Concerning him, therefore, let the new era begin from his birth. Now, when there are some shepherds out in a field keeping watch over their flocks by night, and an angel shows up and is like, hey, I've got good news. Today in the town of David, a Savior is born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And peace on earth will accompany him. Right? That's all Caesar salad language, correct? Right? I mean, you could not be more clear if you were the angels about who is the true Lord of the world. Are you with me? Now, thank you. Next slide. I mean, I'm just going to, I'm going to zip through these last ones. Myra, I know you were wondering about Maya of Lycia. There's an inscription there, divine Augustus Caesar, son of a God, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. Now, the, the rush to love and honor Augustus opens the door to the gradual increase of something that's called the imperial cult, which was an apparatus that was used to not only honor the traditional gods, but to honor the emperors and their families as well. And you need to know that this wasn't Caesar pushing this on anybody. This was Asia Minor rushing for the privilege of doing this. All right, next. Various titles, Son of God, Savior, the God Augustus, Heaven Shining Star, Caesar's Lord. There was a celebration of his actual birthday that was 12 days called Advent. I mean, come on. The, the groups, the communities that gathered um, to, around the imperial cult were called Ecclesia, which is where we get the word church. Caesar's coming into a city was called a parousia, which is the language that Paul uses when talking about Christ appearing in the air. I mean, come on. Next. Yep, there he is, Imperator Caesar, Son of God, Augustus, Savior, Builder of the City, next. Now, the biggest gift Caesar Augustus gave to the world was peace. Peace on earth. So, next, there was a massive, this is not it, of course. This is a representation. This was the altar of Augustan peace that was central in Rome. 
And this thing, the symbolism, we could spend an hour, which we will not, on the symbolism around this thing and how Revelation undercuts it. Next. Yeah, we'll skip this, Jacob. I can feel the, I can feel the boredom. Next. Now, when we get to the seven cities of Revelation, this is written by the end, around the end of the first century. All right, Augustus is towards the beginning. We're at the end. We've, we've had emperors come and go. Tiberius, we had Caligula, who was awful. We had Nero. Nero, oh my goodness, he burned down two-thirds of the city of Rome and then blamed it on Christians. Historically, what Nero did is, as he, was, he killed, we think, Peter and Paul, he ca- kicked out Christians from Rome. He burned them alive to light up dinner parties. He dressed them in the skins of animals and set wild animals loose upon them. Right? Nero, Nero uh, we'll talk about Nero later in the book, because he makes an appearance. Right? And then you have the Flavian dynasty, Vespasian, and Titus, and, and then I think Revelation was written during the reign of the emperor Domitian, who we'll meet next week. But by the time Revelation was written, the worship of the emperor was solidified into the culture of Asia Minor. So real quick, in Pergamum, this was the capital of Asia, this is one of the seven cities, there was a massive temple to Zeus, to Roma, the goddess of Rome, and to Augustus, built in 29 CE, the common era, or AD as we would say it. Like that quick after like four years, after Octavian took power, boom, here we go. Next, Ephesus. There was a temple to Roma and Julius Caesar. There was an altar to Augustus in the great temple of Artemis. They built a temple to Domitian, the emperor we meet in Revelation next. Smyrna. Temple to Roma and Tiberius in the Roman Senate, next. Temple to Augustus, there was a subsidized priesthood, Laodicea, they were wealthy, they had an imperial altar to Domitian and a later imperial temple, next. Philadelphia, they had an imperial temple. Thyatira, an imperial altar and priesthood. Let me see how many more of these slides, because I started with 55 pages earlier this year, or this year. Earlier, yeah, this year. So, the seven, go ahead and put up the map, if you would. So, this seven-city route, that something was a postal route, you would kind of go in a circle back in the first century, was utterly infected and drenched in the imperial cult. Whether it was through altars, inscriptions, coins, festivals, holidays... Like, you could not escape it. We could spend hours, and maybe it feels like we have, talking about how much you needed as a regular citizen of the empire to participate in the, the deification of the emperor just to, just to meet people and have a decent business. So when John comes across seven churches, if you were to go back and read the seven churches, some of them are beginning to experience persecution. There's one Um, that John knows of who's been murdered by the local provincial council. There are others that are experiencing persecution from other synagogues or persecution from the government. 
But then there are a couple of churches, and, and Kevin introduced us to one, who just fit right in. And so the crisis in Revelation for some churches was the fact that persecution was going to do nothing but increase. But for other churches, the crisis was that there was no persecution at all. That they totally fit into Roman worship. And the way they did that was by eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. So we meet three characters in the seven churches. Next slide, if you would. We meet Balaam, we meet the Nicolaitans, and we meet Jezebel. Balaam and Jezebel are straight Old Testament types of the kinds of people that would lead Israel into the worship of false gods. Nicolaitans said, hey, we all know that eating meat, to, uh, eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, that the idols aren't real, so let's go ahead and eat meat anyway just so we can get along with everybody. And all of these groups and all of the churches that tolerate them are roundly condemned. All right? Let me see what else I got. We're not going to do that big, we're not going to do that huge quote. They're not in the mood for it. Nope. Yep. You're a glutton for punishment. Lucius, you are a glutton for punishment. Now, that 15 minute, it was only 15 minutes. Okay, we could spend hours on this. Was just, was designed to say, Simply this, when you sat in one of these seven cities, maybe there are a hundred of you spread out over different houses in the city of Ephesus, which was 200,000 people. You were socially beyond marginalized because you were being told you could not participate in all of the festivals and the holidays. That'd be like if, if somebody stood up and said, listen, guys, you cannot participate in the 4th of July. In fact, any American holiday, your allegiance to Jesus means you can't participate in. Now, just think about how much social awkwardness just that little thing would create, right? It'd be a lot. But this, magnify it by a thousand times, and you get a glimpse of how significant a temptation it was for them to say, hey, guys... Let's just get along because we actually know the truth. And seven times, seven churches, Jesus is like, I know what you're up to. And some of the churches are praised and some of the churches are condemned. Sometimes the crisis is persecution is here. Other times the crisis is you're com totally complacent. But throughout the whole book, what is condemned is the Roman Empire and the demonic power that sits behind it. The blasphemous claims of the emperors. So imagine you're in a little house church of 12 people. You're, 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 you're poor. You cannot read. But you see everywhere you look acclamations of the emperor. On your coins that you use, all of those had the images of the emperor and then like on the reverse would be the tales of their deeds or some sort of symbol. Every month you were forced to celebrate the birthday of Caesar. So the 23rd of every month, if you were living during Caesar Augustus's reign, you would celebrate his birthday. Festivals and processions would go by your house and you were expected to be out on the street offering incense as the processions went by. 
In fact, there, there's some evidence. Go ahead and put up that vow that you were required, you were just beginning to be required in some cities to vow allegiance to Caesar. You know which one I'm talking about, Jacob? Like the last set of slides. Not the big quote, but like, yeah, here we go. So this is something um, that one of the historians I read um, in the, in the third year, this is an inscription that contains a vow that someone would make to Caesar Augustus. In the third year, from the 12th consulship of Caesar Augustus, son of a god, the following oath was taken by the inhabitants of that and the Roman businessmen dwelling among them. That was a city, I think. Now notice the vow. I swear by Jupiter, Earth, Sun, by all the gods and goddesses, and by Augustus himself that I will be loyal to Caesar Augustus and to his children and descendants all my, li- all my life in word, in deed, in thought, regarding his friends, whoever they regard as friends, and that in defense of their interests, I will not spare my body, soul, life, or children. Okay. So, what was the big question on the minds of the Roman churches? Is it possible to worship Caesar and to worship Jesus? Right? That was the big question. Some of the churches of the seven said no. Some of them said yes. Revelation partially was written to answer this question. And so imagine you're in a tiny church, 12 people, you can't read You're surrounded by propaganda, and it's getting worse as the emperors go by. And you have an emissary from this guy who's exiled on an island. And hey, they have something for us today, church, because remember, you wouldn't have a sermon, you'd read a scroll. So you'd read the book of Revelation all at once. And imagine you get to the place where the seven churches are addressed. Imagine you're being talked about, right? By Jesus walking among the lampstands. And then you get a picture of the throne room of the heavens. And the great news, my friends, is that Caesar is not on it. Like there is nothing in our experience that can picture what that would have meant to them. And all the imagery pulled from the Old Testament now applied to the one who sits on the throne undercuts all of the pretense. So just put yourself in that situation. You're in a little bitty house church and you're sure as a minority, like beyond minority population, you are politically vulnerable. 30 years ago, they killed two of our apostles and martyred just tons of Christians in Rome. We know in Asia Minor of a Christian who was just recently put to death. And then you read, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, And the voice I'd first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit. And before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. 
And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone around like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold and victory on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne seven lamps were blazing. So the sevenfold spirit of God Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, and in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and back. The first was like a man or lion. The second was an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying creature. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And then they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God. Straight out of the Caesar playbook, baby to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your hand, all things have come into being. Would you need 12 points of application after that? Nope. This is what the book's intended to do. to answer the question. The reason, the reason the writer in Luke and the writer here uses Caesar language is to make sure that you know to the depths of your being you cannot worship both. So we're going to borrow from Zeus. We're going to borrow from Apollo. We're going to borrow from Domitian. We're going to borrow from Augustus. Because the question they're wrestling with is I know the truth, can I cross my fingers behind my back and burn incense to Caesar? Can I take a vow knowing that that's not really how I feel? And the answer of the risen Jesus in all of his glory walking among the seven churches to those churches is no, you can't. And so the church sits with the most powerful empire the world had ever known, arrayed against them, and is forced to sit and endure suffering in hope that this was real and that Caesar was not. Man. Are there any questions? before we close. I almost ended it there, but I was like, oh, we gotta do some questions. Whoa, Sam, whoa, whoa, whoa! We got this. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for your service. Um, so, so one, of the things, one of the things that stood up for me was Romans 12, 2, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, right, in your mind. And I, I, I can't quote it verbatimly. Right no, now. you just did. But 
something like that, right? And yeah. So that was then, and it's still today. That's where we're going. That is exactly where we're going, young man. We're going to pass the basket again? No, nope, we're not passing. Nope, no baskets. But I like that. Maybe we should. Have you given? See, the, the fact that you just asked that question, that was the first place your mind went to, is exactly what the book is intended to do to us today. Where are we colluding with the powers and principalities that are dressed up as glorious but are in actuality demonic? That's where we're headed. Absolutely. And it hurts when we get there. Hey, Mike, I got one back here. Whew. Can you see me? Yes. Oh, Kevin, I... You're, like there's a rainbow with Jasper and Cornelian when I look at you. Yeah, uh, hello. Uh, just a quick question. Uh, can you uh, provide uh, references to the emperor worship stuff? I'm actually fi finding it very fascinating, that the, 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 the literary parallels. Yeah. I have um, a book list of about 20 books. If you email me, I can send you. And he's not kidding. No, no, that's true. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm actually not kidding. I actually want the references. Thank you. Yeah. Email me, and I will send back the list of books. Yeah, because I'm not making this up. I mean, just, I know. I know it's shocking. Oh, so good, you guys. You get it. This is what it's supposed to do to us. How are we partnering? now? And even though we would all say, listen, our world is great, and our country is great, and all those things, but... We have to ask, the seven churches, those letters ask, force us to ask, where are we colluding with the demonic energy of our world? And if we're not, and that's why it's hard to be at this church sometimes, <laughs> because it's just so easy to have your, uh, your already held assumptions cemented in. And I don't think that's what the text does. I think the text is always stirring up those assumptions and saying, is that really how God works in his kingdom. Oof, great. There Any a, others? There was a clarifying question from the text. Yes. When you referenced the 4th of July. Yeah. As a American holiday. Yeah. Is, and as Christians, we have a tendency to see Halloween that way. Can you juxtapose those two and why you didn't pick Halloween and why you picked the 4th of July, please? Sure. Thanks. Um, we're going to get there. And then I did, I did say, for the July or any other, imagine you had to not participate. But Halloween is not, is not a civil holiday tied to the state or the nation. July 4th is. July 4th, now again, if you're reading this like, oh my goodness, he's going to call us not to celebrate the holiday because America's evil. That just shows you've been discipled by a political system that is not welcome in here. Okay, we're dealing with something much more profound than whether or not you're a Republican or Democrat. Okay? For some of us, the country is an idol, and for others of us, it's not. I don't know which it is. For you, I know what it is for me. But we have to at least be open to the possibility that there is an American story just the same way that there was a Roman story and that maybe there are things that are happening in our country that we would rather either look away from or we would just like to pretend don't exist. 
that the church would be called to interrogate. Now, there's no political anything attached to that other than this is what Revelation, if it's doing its real work, does to us. It just forces us to ask that question. So there was nothing intended by taking July 4th. That was just the first holiday I could think of that had not only holiday value, but it was a national holiday. It was tied to the, to the nation. Make sense? So I was trying to parallel a Roman holiday where they didn't have a distinction between religious and civil or national. It was all the same thing. So that was, that was the only reason I didn't include Halloween. Hi. So when Jesus is speaking and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, is he oh. speaking in this context? And oh, so, yes, he what is. What does he mean by that? Oh, so good. <sighs> I can't calm down. Are you kidding me? If someone would have said, you get paid to do this. I know, I'm trying to stay calm. These are such genius questions, you guys. My goodness. All right, we don't have time to look at the text, but it's, the, it's, it's just so genius what Jesus is doing. All right? Is it, they're trying to trap him, of course. If you say, yes, we're supposed to pay taxes to Caesar, then he's branded a blasphemer, an idolater, by honoring and um, you know, tithing almost to the Roman Empire. If he says no, then he's a zealot and a revolutionary, and he's in trouble either way. So he asks, hey, does anyone here have a denarius? Now, they weren't permitted in the temple courts where Jesus was. But someone has one and brings it out. So they've already condemned themselves. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude, this is so juicy. And then he says, whose image is on that? And what's the answer? Caesar. Coins were propaganda in the first century. And then he says, well, whosoever image is on that thing gets that thing. But whoever's image is stamped on you belongs to God. So he's just channeled Genesis 1. You're made in the image of God. Give Caesar his, his stupid coins. You bear the image of God. See what he's done there? He not only avoided the trap, but he undercut the claim that Caesar would have to all power. So genius. He is so smart. So smart. That's what your school does? In, in math? Totally, dude. Let's be clear about math. Is math fun? It is? Okay, I, can't, I have nothing to say about that. Mike, one more question. Yeah, one more, and then we got to we'll call it. I like this question because I am kind of curious where you're going to go with it. Um, <laughs> what is the deal with all these crazy animals covered with eyes, like your parents? Uh, what does the first century audience perceive when this passage is read to them? Okay. Now we're into beasts. All right? So at some point, we got to do a whole thing on Daniel 7 through 10. Because there are beasts and wings and angels and faces and all sorts of crazy stuff that, that John is going to use to talk about the time that Daniel has spoken of is now here. The big rock that was coming to destroy that statue, like 
It's happening. So some of that is channeling earlier theophanies, right? God appearances in particularly Isaiah and Ezekiel. But some of it's now borrowing. And then there are some, and I couldn't, there was only one historian who said this, and I couldn't confirm it. But, the, but I do trust the historian, but I didn't bring it here because I didn't know if it was, I couldn't get another kind of um, eyewitness to this. But they were saying that some of the imagery from um, the, uh, the four creatures is actually used from how the ancient Babylonians understood the, the control of the heavens. I don't know if that's true, but it, it was just an intellectual option, but I couldn't confirm it anywhere. So anyway, all right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to engage in an act of resistance today. We're going to engage in a political act of resistance against the powers and principalities. We're going to take a tiny bit of bread and a tiny bit of juice. And to the world, that's like, well, that's the dumbest thing ever. You're celebrating a dude who was put to death by Roman power. And yet, no one is singing psalms to Caesar today, baby. Right? Here we are. You want to go visit all these cities? Great. They're just rocks. You are being built into a living temple by living stones. Right? This, I know it feels lame sometimes, and I know it feels boring sometimes, but that is just the earthly imagination. The heavenly apocalyptic imagination is that we are a tiny minority community committed to following the ways of the crucified king. And we do that in defiance of the powers. And the way that we sustain ourselves is by regularly gathering, singing hymns and praises to this king, reminding ourselves of his words, and sharing a meal together. Now in this case, the meal is a thimble. Someday, Lord willing, it will be a full meal. But until then, what you're doing is not politically neutral. You're saying Jesus is Lord, and that means everything else is not. So, when you take the bread and the cup, let's do it a little bit like revolutionaries today. So you're invited to go around the room, and then, if you want to, if you want to take a piece of paper, here's the question I'd love for you to ask, if you want to. What would you be surprised to read is not on the throne of heaven? In other words, what's the thing that you think you were totally at the mercy of? If God were going to open the throne of heaven, what would you be surprised isn't sitting on the throne? So like, for instance, I would be surprised, and again, we all would agree, God's good, God is amazing, God's going to win. We all intellectually agree with that. But we live under the tyranny of fear. So I'm trying to get at what is it that makes us afraid? I saw the door of heaven opened and the market was not on it. I opened, I saw the throne of heaven open and there was a, or the, I saw the door of heaven open and there was a throne and I was not on it. Or a pandemic was not on it. Or Republicans and Democrats were not on it. Praise God, says Kevin, surrounded by a rainbow. <laughs> Does that make sense? I know we all know the right theology, but what is the thing that runs us to fear? 
And it's there, right just one word, two words down. And then in defiance, even though we don't feel it yet, in defiance, take the bread and the cup. Saying that we believe the bread and the cup are more real than the market, the pandemic, the wars and rumors of war. Make sense? So band, come on up. You're awesome. I'm fired up. Oh, I didn't even use the chair. I know, right? It's so disappointing. All right, close your eyes if you would. We know that revolutionaries do their best work with their eyes closed. Father, I pray very simply that you would renew our imaginations and that you would stir us out of the lethargy and the complacency of the rut in which we find ourselves in 21st century America and you would open us up to new ways of seeing and new ways of engaging. We invite your spirit to engage in the transformation and renewal of our minds. In the name of Jesus, we pray amen and amen.